welcome to Taking the Party Out of Politics. My name is Andrew. This is episode two of a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it should be, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more about how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. This is not a podcast about party politics. This is about politics without the political parties, literally taking the party out of politics. There are many good things which come from having political parties, including making it possible for people to get involved in delivering our government, even if those people are not really rich or really powerful. At least, that's the theory. But this is not that story. No, this is not a podcast about party politics. This is not a left-wing perspective, but neither is it a right-wing perspective. This is about politics. This is about the systems which get us a government and about how effective those systems are at delivering good government, such as good planning, good organisation, and generally the things we need. This is a podcast about how the systems are supposed to work, whether you're left-wing or right-wing. This is about the politics which we should all understand, because the systems affect all of our lives all of the time. Left-wing or right-wing, big society or local focus. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better by understanding what is supposed to happen, by understanding why it isn't always happening in the way it's supposed to, and by understanding what sort of things we might do to make things better. In episode one, the introduction, we had an overview of what the issues are and a general idea of the route we're going to be taking through this. In this, the first season, we're going to look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. Next season, we'll be looking at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected and then trying to do a good job. That's where political parties can really get in the way. Finally, in season three, we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. This is episode two. Today, we're going to start at the very beginning and examine why we have a government at all. After all, perhaps everyone has complained about their government at least once. What is the point of something that just costs money and which isn't appreciated by the people who pay for it? Well, in a moment, we'll have a look at that. But even before we do that, let's take a little step back and remind ourselves of why this is all important. In almost every system in nature, the system learns from experience. This is called the theory of cybernetics. An animal learns that a certain other animal is dangerous or doesn't taste good and isn't worth the risk in trying to attack or eat it, and so the animal tends to avoid it. A child learns that the oven is hot and so stops touching it. If you're sailing a boat towards a point on the horizon, but the wind and tide are taking you off course, you adjust your course to compensate for the wind and tide so that you still end up at your destination. Cybernetics is about systems that produce feedback and how that feedback is used to improve the ability of the system to achieve its goal. Yet, it seems that when things don't work as well as they should do in our system of politics and government, we're not learning the lessons. Or, if we are, then we're learning the wrong lessons. For example, if things don't improve, and if that means that voters become disillusioned with the system, 
they tend to stop voting or caring. Or another example, if the system encourages a certain unhelpful type of behaviour on the part of our elected politicians, or even encourages only a certain type of person to even try to get elected, then we blame the politicians, rather than ask ourselves the question whether the system could be improved. Now that's just not good enough. If you're the sailor on the boat, you don't just give up on where you needed to get to and allow yourself to sail wherever the wind and tide happen to be taking you. So when it comes to the systems which are organising the way our country works, why do we just put up with systems that aren't working? So that's why what we're doing here is important. And it's also why your involvement in what we're doing here is important. Working together, we could develop improvements to the system or to the ways in which we use the existing system to actually make the system work better on our behalf. Perhaps some big changes, but perhaps also some small tweaks at the corners just to make things flow together better. At the very least, improvements could ensure that the system didn't encourage that unhelpful behaviour, at least as much, or didn't disillusion voters, at least perhaps not so quickly. And that's important. Solutions as well as problems, or perhaps solutions which are refined by a real understanding of the problems. There are lots of problems in the world, and lots of people are ready to point them out. And there are some serious problems with the way in which our political systems are not working. But we need to do more than just point out the problems. Rather than concentrating on the problems, we also need to focus on identifying solutions. Of course, to identify the best solutions we need to understand clearly and simply what the problems are and what causes the problems. Then we can move forward, thinking of ways to generate creative, constructive solutions, solutions which will help our political system to operate more smoothly, more effectively, and more in the interests of the people. We need solutions and ideas for people to rally around, not just a list of problems for people to rail against. So we need to be learning positive, constructive lessons from our experience. But where were we? We were going to look at why we have a government. And let's really start at the beginning. What was there before we had social groups? Probably nothing very much. Human beings are social beings. On the whole, we like being with other people, at least for some of the time. Some people more than others, of course, but we like being able to have the option of spending time with other people. If there was anything before social groups, then it was probably some sort of free-for-all, of lots of individuals all just going out to get what they can. Or perhaps it was just family groups. Then we had slightly larger groups. A few families together, perhaps. But outside the social groups, at best, there was a sort of anarchy, in the sense of there being no rules at all. Some people believe that this was a version of anarchy in which it is the strongest or the most violent individuals who dominate, the lone wolf takes what they need in acts of random violence and moves on. And that may have been the case inside most of the social groups too, and perhaps between different social groups. Although people got together to be social and to cooperate, if there are no rules, or at least if there are no social norms, then we might conclude that there's nothing to stop the strongest from just taking what they want. So how do we get from nothing much to social groups? How do social groups get organised? Are there any overall principles of organisation? Let's think about how a society works. If you think about it, pretty much everything we do in groups 
works on assumptions and expectations about how we're going to rub along together. Expectations about behaviour, mutual respect and so on. There are implied agreements in all sorts of things, sort of expectations about behaviour towards each other. If you're invited round to dinner, you expect to get fed, and your host would expect you to behave reasonably. It might not happen, of course. You might behave badly. You might insult your host. And if that happened, we would all understand if that led to a bit of a breakdown in the friendship. Sometimes this takes the form of an actual contract, as in the marriage contract. A marriage contract might include words like honour or cherish. But even without the special wording of a wedding service, there are certain obligations which each partner is undertaking. Not just an agreement to always argue over Christmas or over whose turn it is to take the bins out, but an agreement to work together on at least some things, at least most of the time, as a partnership. Well, the same is true of the way larger social groups work together. If you go back to large family groups, perhaps in nomadic times or village communities, people got together for a variety of reasons, to share skills and to work together, for example, in hunting or gathering food, for company and safety to share stories about what was good to eat, to share stories about what was likely to eat you. And, in fact, we'll come back to that idea later on when we explore our relationship with the news. Now, that safety partly came from the fellow members of the community, but that quickly became organised behind a leader or leading group, mostly because it makes sense to organise things rather than for each person just to do whatever they want to do at any time. The leader might be the strongest warrior or perhaps the cleverest organiser of warriors. And the agreement was that members of the group would follow the leader in return for good leadership and for being a bit safer than they would have been on their own. Perhaps there was still the risk of violence from the lone wolf from outside the social group. There's also plenty of evidence which suggests that large social groups gathered on a regular basis. But it has always been true that we're happy to gather with people whom we know and yet are always more wary of people whom we don't know. And perhaps there was still violence within the social group, with tussles over who was actually the strongest warrior, or who had the right to be in charge. As things became a bit more organised, perhaps the leadership of the group involved more than just working out which valley to move to next, or how to ensure that everyone was safe around the fire at night. The things which were important were not just where to go tomorrow, or what immediate danger to avoid, thinking started to be a little more long-term. Cooperation over planting crops in communities which were no longer nomadic, organising sewage and fresh water and building walls. Gradually, leadership became more like the government which we recognise today. It might be that the leader was called a king, or that the leadership was provided by a group of wise elders getting together, or even that everyone got together to vote. Although everyone might have meant just the adult men who were not slaves. The social group worked together because the leader and the organisation of leadership was providing something which the people needed. The leadership provided the safety and a bit of organisation. The members of the community behaved and contributed towards these central costs in what became known as taxes. The members of the community didn't fight or argue amongst themselves. Well, not too much. Have you ever been stuck in a house on a rainy day with bored children? Anyway, not too much. And if they did, then either the leader or some representative of the leader decided who was right and who was wrong, and whether any punishment was necessary, not least to ensure that other people were discouraged from fighting and arguing in the same way in the future, in what gradually becomes a system of justice, and so on. Now, 
There's some evidence that there might have been an idyllic period during which violence between human beings was rare. Exceptional. In a period before any sort of organised leadership, small groups of humans may have either just kept apart from each other or not been naturally violent and warlike to each other. But as soon as we get leadership, we get organisation of us against them. And with that came the need for rules, justice and control of the violence, which can be unleashed between us the people whom we know and trust, and them, the people who we don't know and whom we either instinctively don't trust or whom our leaders encourage us not to trust. Sort of like the Big Brother approach, where society is held together by always being against some other group. And let me add a quotation here from the author and psychologist Stephen Pinker. He says, When bands, tribes and chiefdoms came under the control of the first states, the suppression of raiding and feuding reduced their rates of violent death fivefold. And when the fiefs of Europe coalesced into kingdoms and sovereign states, the consolidation of law eventually brought down the homicide rate another thirtyfold. Now that's from a book he wrote called The Better Angels of Our Nature in 2011. In other words, as society became more organised, more controlled, the world became safer. It was five times less likely that you would die violently if you're living under control of one of the first states rather than in a small band or tribe. And when those early states became larger kingdoms and independent states, then the rate of violent death was another 30 times less likely. Society and organised states were good for not getting killed by other people. And that's a pretty important first step in living better, not dying. Of course, this is all rushing through hundreds or even thousands of years of human history and picking up on a few threads along the way to make sense of where we are now. History is a lot more complicated than that, with a lot of bumps on the way and twists and turns. However, what we're really interested in here is exactly that, making sense of where we are now. And we can pick out and condense the grand themes of history and human development. It might have actually happened a lot more haphazardly, without an overall plan or direction. But we got here in the end. It's useful to pick up on those grand themes and to get a feeling for the roles they played and why they occurred. Now, before we move on, let's take a step back for a moment and consider all of this from a slightly different perspective. Let's talk about this civilising process. Yes, we've moved across history and before history from individuals to small social groups to larger social groups to small kingdoms and fiefdoms to larger kingdoms and to countries and eventually to nation-states. Part of that has been seeking safety and organisation. But another way of thinking about how we ended up with governments is to view the development as what has been termed a civilising process. The logic of a civilising process is that we can get more out of our lives by being civilised because of two things. First, we're not constantly worried about being attacked or of someone stealing our stuff. That's a bit like the logic we've already been using, being safe, being organised. Second, we understand that we can get more out of other people by cooperating with them rather than by simply stealing their stuff. And there are two triggers for the civilising process. First, strong centralised leadership, and second, what is called gentle commerce. Now, the term Leviathan has been used here to refer to a strong centralised leadership. The Leviathan, that's a term used by a philosopher called Thomas Hobbes, could be a powerful king or queen, or it could be a well-established democracy. 
what the Leviathan does is to claim a monopoly on violence. In other words, the message which the state wants you to receive is that there is no point in individuals being violent to each other because the state will punish you. Only the state is allowed to be violent. The Leviathan establishes laws and rules, or applies the laws and rules which already exist. The Leviathan then makes it clear that anyone who doesn't obey the laws and rules will be punished. The punishment is clearly understood by everyone to be so severe that the risk of the punishment makes it not worth disobeying the laws and rules. And mostly this works. And because people are mostly not being so violent towards each other, people are able to concentrate on other stuff, making stuff, trading stuff. And again, as Steven Pinker has said, the positive sum cooperation of commerce flourished best inside a big tent presided over by a leviathan. In other words, not only are we less likely to die once we're living under a controlled system of law and order, but we're also able to live better if we're working together with other people. So with a strong centralised control, and this is compared to a bit more random control of a small little uh, sort of warlord boss, but with a strong centralised organised control which makes everyone behave and follow the laws, people are able to enjoy life more. People are able to concentrate on making more stuff rather than simply on protecting what little they already have. Once people obey the laws, they are able to begin to recognise that other people are actually more valuable as potential trading partners rather than merely as people to rob. Diplomacy and interpersonal skills, that's the gentle commerce, those skills become more valuable rather than mere violence. Life among equals, that's men and women together, is more productive and more satisfying than a life lived by taking from others and by fighting others. And it's certainly more productive and satisfying for the majority of people who are probably not naturally drawn to stealing and killing anyway. We give up, or the centralised monopoly on violence forces us to give up, or at least forces the more selfish and violent members of society to give up. We give up random selfish violence in return for stability. Well, that feels reasonable, doesn't it? Not just safety and organisation, leadership and government makes sense because it makes us all behave. And we agree to behave rather than to steal and murder for what we want because we all get better off as a result. And in fact, it turns out that it's better for the state and for the government too. If we're more productive and happier, then the state gets richer too. If we're stealing from each other or killing each other, or even if we are stealing from the state next door and killing their people, then whilst a few people might get rich from looting the spoils of war, most people get poorer or die or are injured and are therefore less able to contribute to the economy after the fighting is over. And if the people are poorer, so is the state. Even at the very most basic level, that there isn't so much activity to tax, so therefore the tax revenues are going to be lower. OK, so where have we got to? People got together partly because we are social beings, and because we like to be with other people most of the time. And partly because we're better off in a group than on our own. We give up some things, the freedom to behave completely as we like, because we have to respect other people in the group. For example, perhaps we agree to pay some taxation. We get some things, company, certainly, but also stuff such as cleaning the streets and some increased level of safety. We get the opportunity to make more of our lives rather than constantly living in fear of someone stronger or more violent. And this giving up some things the right to do whatever you want whenever you want, 
in return for getting some things, safety, better opportunities, is not that dissimilar to being invited to dinner or working together with your partner in a marriage or in any other relationship. There's a sort of agreement implied in it. And at the level of a society, we call this a social contract. And there's a bit more background we could add in here. This is really about understanding more clearly why our existing social contract might be more like where we happen to be rather than an ideal, perfect social contract. Now, an additional point of view on the social contract was introduced by a philosopher called John Rawls to include the idea of fairness. So, as we've already said, the idea of a social contract is that the individuals in a society agree that they will be governed because there is more to be gained by being a member of that governed society than is lost by being a completely free, independent individual. But what if some of the people are stronger than others? Would they force a particular version of the social contract upon the weaker people, one which was more beneficial to the stronger people? Now, John Rawls suggested that in an ideal situation, the social contract should be drawn up in what he calls the original position. This is not a real original position, it's an imagined original position in which the deal-making for the social contract is carried out behind what is called a veil of ignorance. This just means that the people making the deal don't know anything about the people for whom they're making the deal. They don't know if they're young or old or what their ethnicity or sex is or even what those people think they need to lead a good life. The idea is that behind the veil of ignorance, the negotiators will make a completely fair deal. Making the deal for the social contract from the original position means that fairness will be at the heart of justice. John Rawls said that there would be two principles in a fair social contract. First, each citizen would enjoy the same basic freedoms as any other citizen. And second, any social and economic inequalities would be dealt with to try to support the least advantaged citizens. Although we actually live in a society which only works because we sort of follow a social contract, even if we don't think about it every day, this highlights that our social contract might not be perfect. Remember that the social contract isn't actually a contract. There's no single document detailing every bit of how we should behave, or detailing who gets what, or who has what rights, or who has what obligations. There was no original position when the deal for our social contract was made from behind a veil of ignorance. We've managed to fumble and bumble our way here. Sometimes we've had to fight for rights. Sometimes we've claimed them. Sometimes they've been given to us. Though you might wonder whether, if those rights are truly fundamental, anyone should actually be in the position to give us rights, if we fundamentally should have those rights anyway. Perhaps that's actually someone agreeing that they won't keep taking those rights away. Not quite the same as giving them to us. Anyway, there are some laws, but most of the time we behave in a civilised way with each other because we've learned that to behave in a civilised way is just the right thing to do and because it's better for us than always fighting each other. But there are still problems. There are still times when things aren't fair. There are still times when people who already have stuff aren't happy about sharing it with people who don't have stuff. In fact, we can see that many of the ways in which our society worked were certainly less perfect than now in the not-too-distant past. For example, we now have much more equal rights between men and women than was the case even within our lifetimes. And it's still not perfect today. We still use terms like age discrimination to highlight ways in which our social contract still isn't working adequately enough to show that we don't approve of those ways. Our current social contract is almost certainly still not perfect. 
it has not been drawn up behind a veil of ignorance. It's just where we've stumbled our way to so far. Although we're trying to improve things, we still have a way to go. For example, although we theoretically have laws which say that there should be equal treatment for everyone, irrespective of their racial background, we're still aware that some people don't act in a way which gives everyone equal treatment. To try to redress this balance, in fact, we get protests such as Black Lives Matter, which, of course, are really just saying that black lives matter as well, because it's turned out to be necessary to tell some people that they can't treat black people as though their lives don't matter as much as white lives. Clearly, our social contract isn't perfect. Certainly not if we have some people who still have to fight for their rights, and it's even less perfect if there are some people who are still able to deny other people their rights. Now, essentially, all this is a way of acknowledging that our social contract could have been designed more deliberately. It could have been designed with more universal fairness in mind. Where we've ended up with the systems which work some of the time, but with systems and customs and habits and traditions which might benefit some people a bit unfairly, at least some of the time, well, where we've ended up might not be where we would have planned to be if we could have planned the whole thing from the start. But of course, we didn't plan the whole thing from the start. We've just ended up here. Some steps have been deliberate and some definite improvements have been made, sometimes slowly and incrementally by people just changing the way they do things and what they think about things, sometimes in sudden jumps, perhaps organised by people who wanted to make the world a bit better, both for themselves and for others. But perhaps we still wouldn't have designed things like this if we'd known where we were going. And perhaps it's then not such a surprise to realise that things don't always work and don't always work out as well as they could or should do if the systems we are using are just the ones we ended up with, rather than the systems which we would have chosen. Those systems, good and bad, working and not working, affect all of our lives all of the time. And that's why this stuff is so important, important to everyone. And we call the agreement between those of us who are governed and those of us who do the governing, the agreement that we will obey the rules in return for those things such as safety, organisation, justice, fairness... We call that agreement the social contract. Now, what is important is that all parties to the social contract, king as well as subjects, government as well as citizens, all parties understand not just the opportunities which this offers to them, but also the obligations which the social contract places upon them. So, next time on Taking the Party Out of Politics... Next time, we will start to look at how all that is supposed to work, taking a path from democracy through to representative democracy. And don't forget that we know that we aren't the only people who can have good ideas. We really want to hear from other people too, and that means you. With that in mind, the website for the podcast is talktogether.info, and there you can follow the link to the podcast, where you'll be able to find transcripts of the podcasts, as well as our email address, and lots of other information which you may find useful. For now, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, perhaps you can tell your friends. And perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it just really also makes us feel useful. That would be great. Thank you.